Welcome to the Empathy Exchange Podcast, the show dedicated to helping seniors care staff and residents' families build relational connections based on trust, respect, and understanding as partners in care. To work together in the shared goal of providing the best possible quality of life and care for people living in seniors care, your residents and loved ones. So if you work in seniors care or you're a family member, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Deborah Bakti. Welcome back to the Empathy Exchange. And today I'm delighted to have Jennifer Cornell as our guest. So I just want to take a couple of minutes and share her bio. Jennifer Cornell is the Director of Long-Term Care and Seniors Services with the County of Gray, responsible for three long-term care communities. Jen is a respected long-term care and health system leader with over 20 years of progressively senior leadership roles. Jennifer is a transformational leader focused on quality care and service initiatives, team development and growth. She has harnessed the County of Grey Color It Your Way philosophy and engaged 316 residents and over 500 team members in a resident-centered care approach. Jennifer's passion to create a program that would address the concerns related to social isolation during the pandemic became a mission. Through collaborative work, Jennifer led Gray County's care communities in the development of the Designated Care Partner Program, recognizing and formalizing the relationship between essential caregivers and long-term care providers. Gray County Long-Term Care now has over 500 family and friends who identify as designated care partners, supporting their loved ones living in one of the county homes. Jennifer, welcome to the Empathy Exchange. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I want to dive right in because what really caught my attention is all of the work that you're doing with Color It Your Way. And I'd love for you just to take a couple of minutes and share more about that philosophy and program. Sure. Thanks. Uh, I love talking about Color It Your Way. It's our promise. It's our North Star. It's our mission statement. It's our words for person-centered care. And it all came about uh, back in 2012, the county, which operates the three long-term care homes, did a rebranding and it's gray county. So color it your way became the tagline for the county. And it fit really perfectly with the work that we were doing in long-term care in kind of really digging into what is it that we wanted to be in care providers of seniors care. And uh, so at, at the same time, we'd also experienced some really difficult, challenging times uh, with some alleged abuse that, that was in fact uh, validated as uh, resident abuse. It was a terrible situation that, that we worked through and gave us an, an opportunity to decide what defines us. And did we want this terrible thing to be what defined us? Or was it an opportunity to leverage uh, what, what was really important to us in the work that we did in looking after the most vulnerable people in our community? So we held some focus groups of residents, families, uh, staff, 
And we actually drew pictures of the perfect state. If, if the long-term care home that we worked in was perfect, what would that look like? And the, the rules were that people weren't allowed to use words. They had to, to draw it out. And then they described back what their, their picture was showing. And it was in the description of their picture that we came up with the words that align with color it your way. And that was over 10 years ago, and it's really become foundational in uh, how we behave at work, how we face challenging times, how we make decisions. And the words are uh, community, opportunity, leadership, organizational quality and safety, you as the center of all that we do, relationships, integrity, and tomorrow. And so Color It spells out those words and, and really guides us in our day-to-day -day work. And originally it was focused on the relationship that we have with residents, but it's really expanded to be our promise to the people who live in our home, the people who work in our home, and the people who visit and support the residents that live in our home. So certainly my ears perk up because the focus of this podcast is around the relationship between staff and families and how they work as partners in care to create the best possible quality of life and care for the resident, their loved one. And you mentioned uh, community and relationships. So I'm curious to hear from the from your Color It Your Way program, how that, and perhaps if you've got a couple of stories, how that has played out with how your staff or leadership relate and support families particularly. And I really appreciate your transparency right in the get-go that sometimes bad things happen. But when, when that does occur, how's the philosophy of Color It Your Way supporting those positive relationships? Yeah, thanks. It, it, I, I, the transparency is really important because we're, everything that we do is relationships with people. And the people that live and work and visit and support our homes are all ad adults and they're all smart and they all know what's going on. And there's no point in not being transparent. So that is kind of a, fu a fundamental part of the work that we do. Like, let's just be um, transparent and truthful and remember that we're all on the same team, essentially in making sure that the people that live in our home are getting the care and service that they want and that is right for them. And part of, I think what helped us get there was recognizing that we're all on the same team and that we need all of those parties to be able to successfully provide excellent care. So we need to know from the resident, uh, the individual who's moving in, what is it that's important to them, what are they looking for? What are they worried about? The staff, they have expertise. They know how to provide care and support in this whole myriad of, um, of spaces. So they provide, you know, they have clinical expertise, they have nutritional expertise and so on. And then of course, the family members and friends, the people who support the resident, they bring another wealth of information and um, and support and knowledge to the table. And so Color It helps us step back and remember that we need to be checking in and including all of those partners 
to be able to be providing person-centered care. You've shared before about having a pro-attention plan, which I love. I've never heard that expression before. Can you share a little bit more about that with us? Sure. And it's it's interesting. Sometimes we think of these things in isolation. So we have for decades had lots of strategies in supporting staff or team members who might be struggling and need a little bit of extra support in terms of education and training or coaching. And we don't always translate that uh, you know, to the other partners at the table. Um, we have care plans or plans of care for our residents that are well-documented and thought out and should be co-designed. And, and then we have these situations that we know happen where we have difficult families or difficult relationships. And you've talked about that in your other podcasts. And, um, and I love the language, the spicy, you know, the spicy families. And, um, and so we just kind of translated some of the knowledge that we have, the experience we have in working with uh, team members and, and residents with care plans and applying that to our relationships with family members. And um, a lot of the things you've talked about over your other podcasts play a role into why someone might be deemed by us as a difficult family or a spicy family. So um, they care a lot about the resident. They Maybe there's a knowledge gap. Maybe they're grieving. Um, they, they feel like they're not getting the information that they need. And so it's up to us to figure out what that is and then uh, help support to fill in those gaps or uh, resolve some of those challenges. So one of the strategies is a pro-attention plan and that's co-designed. So uh, we might have someone who is regularly calling, regularly emailing, really upset, um, easily angered, not sure, you know, feeling like we just aren't ever meeting the mark. And you've described this in uh, another podcast where the harder we try, the worse we seem to get <laughs> sometimes. And so a pro-attention plan is just that. It's being transparent, meeting with the person and saying, or family, however many there might be, and just saying, hey, we seem not to be meeting the mark. We want to meet the mark. We don't want to kind of suck at this. <laughs> we don't. We want to do a great job. We, it's important to us but we seem to never quite get there. What does get there, what does getting there look like? Would it help if you had a key person, one person that you connected with on the team? And what if we had regularly scheduled check-ins? So every Tuesday at four o'clock, it's a phone call, or if you're here, it's in person, or it's an email, what works best for you? Uh, if something urgent comes up, don't hold on to that. That needs to be shared with us at the moment. But if it's something that we could just talk through at the next time we check in, let's do that. Um, so those are kind of some of the strategies and it, it really works. People then get a chance to feel like they've been heard. Maybe we're better at listening because we've set aside this time to listen to what's going on, not trying to listen, but also doing other things, maybe multitasking you know, in a busy day. So it would be quite common for us to have you know, a handful, five, six, seven of these co-designed attention plans, positive attention plans in each of our homes at any given time. I just love that approach because it's proactive. 
And we can tend to be a reactive culture in healthcare. It's just designed that way. And it also, you're giving your staff the ability to influence in a positive way and not be feeling defensive. And then it's an invitation for the family, like even describing it as a co-design conversation and relationship. Then you're also empowering the family where they want to feel seen and heard because we certainly know that sometimes people, they will attract negative attention just to get attention, like any kind of attention. I don't know if you've ever seen that with your kids. I certainly did with mine. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but what you're doing is it's that, almost that expression, taking the wind out of their sails. And it's a bit of a mea culpa. We want to make this better. Uh, and I can imagine that by doing more of that, then you're able to reduce that spicy flavor in, in the family relationship. Yeah, I think the other thing is that it's okay to say we could have done better with this. And that's something that I learned from a leader a number of years ago. And, and maybe for family members and friends and residents who are listening and, and colleagues in long-term care, for a long time, we feel, we felt like we shouldn't admit that we've made a mistake, but that by admitting it, it's, you know, it's going to show up on a compliance inspection report. It's going to show up in the media. And, you know, we already are battling a lot of that negativity about long-term care. And so we don't want to be making it worse. But at the person level, it's okay to say we could have done this better. Mm -hmm. And if we do that consistently and people believe that when we say we've made a mistake, we're not telling them just a little bit of the mistake, but we've hidden everything else. We're telling them everything. Then there's a trust built there and people aren't in a hurry to go to the media or feel like they have to go somewhere else to get results because they believe that, that we're having a good conversation and we're not hiding anything. And that can be really scary. I remember the first time in a family discussion saying, you know, we could have done this better. And it was exactly as you described that kind of deflation, right? That person was geared up ready for a fight because they felt like that's what they had to do to support their mom, was they had to go in with all this armor on ready for a big fight. And then I said, you know what, you're right. Something we've talked about before is this ribbon of truth that comes with every complaint or concern. And sometimes as staff, it can feel like families might be looking for mistakes. And then it turns out it's not always, it's not that hard to find mistakes sometimes. And, uh, or it's, it's a mistake that, or a complaint that maybe we think isn't, isn't such a big deal, but it's, it's garnering this huge re response. Having worked with you and heard your story and, and done some work with you, I have a better appreciation that that big response is the tip of an iceberg of a lot of other things that are going on. So it's helpful for me to have that perspective now that this big reaction to broken glasses or lost dentures or lost pajama bottoms, for example, um, isn't really about the, the lost pajama bottoms, it's about a whole bunch of other things. But it's important for us to know that 
and then to say we really did lose the dentures. I have a story of we, we regularly lost a resident's pajama bottoms. I don't know whether they just looked like everybody else's pajama bottoms. I don't know. And um, every time the son would come in, something was lost from the from his laundry, his dad's laundry, and it was it was almost always pajama bottoms. And this would escalate. And eventually he was looking for that. And of course, we would, despite our best efforts, lose something. And a few times in a row, he would come in and something was missing and he would just have this huge explosive response, barge into my office and be yelling and like, like almost frothing at the mouth, so angry. And then of course the staff are afraid of him and so people avoid him. And at that time I was the executive director and so I'd looked at my name tag and remembered that the buck stopped here. So I need to come up with some sort of solution. <laughs> I had to help solve this problem. So he, he came in um, very hot one afternoon and I said, um, why don't we sit down? We need to come up with a strategy. We need a, we need a plan. This isn't great for you to feel this upset. It's certainly not great for me to be feeling you know, scared or worried. And so we made a deal that he got to be mad about things because we were dropping the ball. So you do get to be upset, but there's a way to do that. And that he would come to me, I would offer to go make him a cup of tea, I would leave him in my office, I would go slowly make a cup of two cups of tea, come back, and by the time I was back with the tea, he'd cool down a little bit and then we could talk about what was going on, what was really going on, how might we re resolve the problem. And uh, it worked. I, I think I made tea two times in over the next two years that uh, his dad lived with us, but it made a difference. And we designed that together. It wasn't me telling him. Uh, we we talked about this as a possible solution. Yeah, that the the tea strategy, right? And creating that that place for a pause. And what I also hear in that is the power of your presence and sharing that presence with him and giving him agency over his presence. And I just, I think it's so important and I just wanna underline what you've said that it's okay to be mad, right? There are ways to be able to express that to be productive because typically people don't complain about things that they don't care about. Exactly, exactly. And I, I've thought that for a number of years and try to remind my team that complaints aren't bad. As long as we're receiving complaints, it means someone believes that we're going to listen to the complaint and do something about it. It's when things go very quiet yeah. that we really need to be worried. If we're hearing, not hearing from anyone, then there's talk happening, but it's not with us. We're, we're not part of that conversation. So, uh, you know, complaints are a great opportunity for us to have a sit down face to face with someone to find out what else is going on for us to fix up systems. Things change. Systems change. We need to sometimes change our process. We may not have thought of something. So as long as we're getting a complaint, it means someone's taken the time because they care enough to either put that in writing or and let's face it, none of us like conflict and it takes a lot of courage to pick the phone up and and make a complaint to someone who has full control 
over your loved ones day to day. Mm -hmm. So if they're doing that, it means that there's some trust already that we are going to listen and then do something. And then it's our responsibility to do that. We need to hear it, take it seriously. If you'd like to learn more about the work that I do in providing staff training, family training, or if you're also looking to redesign your admission process, you can find me at debrabakti.com. And you can email me at debra at debrabakti.com. And all that information will be in the show notes. And to go back to your comment about there's a ribbon of truth and everything, just having that mindset is going to help people to not get so defensive and reactive and just shut down. And there are times when, and I've, I've certainly shared this with some of my personal stories of completely overreacting because of the emotion and the frustration and the fatigue. But within, even within my overreaction, there was a ribbon of truth of what the root cause of the complaint or the frustration was. 100%. And sometimes the complaints and the responses can seem so over the top and there's nothing we can do about it. For example, we might perceive that. So in in one of your podcasts, you talk about some of the misconceptions and if we can dispel some of those misconceptions early on, it helps manage people's expectations. But if we haven't done that and someone thinks that their loved one is not going to fall now that they've moved into long-term care, that's just we're setting everybody up for disappointment and frustration and um when they when they might come in very spicy and reacting really strongly the ribbon of truth is that something went wrong somewhere and there's something that we can do about it one of the tools that we use and have used for years is the four agreements and the the four agreements are uh, be impeccable with your words don't make assumptions don't take things personally and always do your best and that reminds us to not take it personally it's not it's not necessarily our fault that someone fell or had a complaint but we can then do something about it there's there's some ribbon of truth to our opportunity right to the complaint your story about broken glasses and and we hear that a lot actually and sometimes when we get defensive we've glasses are broken dentures are a big thing lost laundry um, hearing aids that went through the laundry or that someone stepped on and as part of our worry about blame we might say something like well your mom tucked them down the side of her wheelchair okay but mom lives here for a reason and at the crux of it it's broken. So now let's just say it's broken and let's figure out how we move forward to making it so that mom can hear and go to dining with teeth and ears and glasses and and have dignity and and some quality of life. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really what's important. Well, and going back to in the managing of the expectations, being able to just with families as they first come into your community, things aren't always going to be perfect. And and these are some of the things that can happen. So then at least if we're aware that there's a risk of that, it you're still not going to be happy with the outcome, but oh, I guess, you know, these things happen. And I get how dentures can get 
wrapped in a serviette at lunch and then it gets picked up and thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's all of those things that can happen in a really busy environment, mm-hmm. right? It's lots of people and, and uh, busy and moving parts. The other, the other expectation I think that we're going to start talking about a little bit more at move in is meals and the food. And I think it's important for us to, we always ask, you know, what are your favorite foods? What are the foods you don't like? And then some of that clinical stuff about allergies and texture and and all that kind of thing. But when we ask what your favorite foods are, we're, it's good for us to know, but we also need to be saying that we might not make your favorite foods the way you always made it or your partner made that. And, and we need to be sorting that out. What does that look like? And then there's lots of opportunities for families and and friends to bring in a favorite dish made the way it was made and 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 eat together. Um, but food is another big part of our life and dining together and the the foods that bring us joy and pleasure. And we might not always do it the way it was before they moved in. And I think we, I think we have an opportunity to talk about that a little bit more when, when people move in. It's the thing about these relationships and these knowledge gaps is that it's not big philosophical things, really. It's, it's this getting curious about what matters to you in your day and what brings you joy and what doesn't. And it's how your potatoes are cooked. It's that you can look out the window and watch the birds or that you can watch hockey or whatever it might be. Um, And I'm not sure that we do that as well as we could. I think that's some work for us to do. Well, and as you're saying that, Jen, I think as well, families have their perceptions of uh, their parents. So my dad, he only likes mashed potatoes. And yet, I'm assuming that my dad is not, because he's in his 80s, isn't going to want to try scallop potatoes or um, hash browns or, right? Because I think sometimes yeah. as as adult children, we just assume that our parents are stuck in their ways, set in their ways, and they're not going to want to try anything else. Uh, I never imagined that my husband would ever play bingo. And he was down there every Thursday night wanting to win all the potato chips. (laughs) So as a family member, if I had this, make sure that the football's on and these are the only things that he likes, then I'm really ripping him off of additional opportunities and experiences as a resident in a home that has all sorts of other things that he's never experienced. Yeah, and it works both ways. We also have um, people move in and their adult children want them to have this social life that doesn't interest them, doesn't interest the residents. So they've, they've been kind of lived a quiet life. They have a small circle of friends, really enjoy more independent individual activities. And the adult children want them to be at Thursday Bingo every week and the music and the concert and the card game. 
and that's just not who they are. So there's an opportunity for us to be talking about that as well at MoveIn. And I think long-term care broadly has come a long way in even the language that we use. We don't, most long-term care homes don't talk about admissions as much anymore. We talk about move-in, so we're getting there. And then with the work that you're doing and, and sharing this other perspective, then we build into that move-in discussion some of these knowledge gaps and what are the narratives. And I love the ABCs, which are acknowledge, be clear and get curious. And it's this curiosity that really helps us sort out what's important to the person. And that's some of the work that we've done with our team is reminding people that just because we wouldn't want it a certain way. So we, an example, another example of that is um, bathing and showers. So the legislation in Ontario is uh, legislated two baths a week. And when my papa, my grandfather moved into long-term care, as far as he was concerned, water was meant for under bridges and in a teacup. <laughs> and he had summer long underwear and winter long underwear, and he did a sponge bath. That's that's what he did That's for his whole life. So to uh, put that man into a hoyer or a sling and drop him into a bathtub was a very traumatic experience and not anything that was important to him. And so we what we continue to do and to use our color it philosophy is to help us sort through the rules the legislation our preconceived ideas our own perspectives but filter through all that to find out what the resident really wants mm -hmm. because above all for my colleagues in long-term care the legislation allows us to do what the resident wants we just have to document it and so we just have to ask. And if the resident says, no, I'll have one shower a week. That's it. That's all I want. Do not dunk me in a bathtub. Not interested. We just have to document that. And, and then remind ourselves that it's what the resident wants. It's not bad. It's not poor care. It's, it's what's important to the resident. We're, of course, not going to let someone you know, become <laughs> filthy and unhygienic. Like that's the, the, the nurse's do a great job. They they do their assessments, they're clinical experts. They they would never let that someone get into that state, right? So um, it's important to ask the residents and then just document it. And I think when the trust with the family has been built, because what I've heard from other families who are not happy with the care, they say, well, you know, the home just says, well, the resident has rights, almost like it's an excuse to not having not having to do the work. And what I try to clarify is just exactly what you're saying is, well, let's really have an understanding of what the resident prefers. And for, I think, going back to the comment about curiosity, for families to also tap into their curiosity with the staff about their loved one's interests and experiences. And and I think part of that is it's empowering on both sides because, you know, what my mom lived in assisted living and she was what you had described earlier, a homebody, didn't like to do things, didn't like to socialize. 
And for me to be able to say to the staff, so what, what's my mom been up to today or this week? Oh, you're never going to believe it, Deb. She actually went to such and such an activity. And then the staff are feeling excited and happy to be able to share something. And I'm not responding with, well, why did you make my mom go? She doesn't like that kind of stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, isn't that great? Yeah. And that starts to build the relational connection and the trust, because I think when families do have the trust that this is about the residents' rights because it is centered around the care of the resident, uh, and that for us, for us as families to be able to put our preferences and biases and beliefs aside uh, can, can be a challenge if we don't have that trust and, and partnership and care. I totally agree. The trust is such a big part. So if I'm a family member, and I have been a family member of uh, a resident, uh, my grandma lived in retirement, my my other grandma, my nana lived in one of the homes that I worked in, uh, my papa did as well. Um, we have this strong responsibility as an advocate, right? I'm my, I'm my grandma's person, I'm my mom's person, I'm my partner's person. And Sometimes that identity can be what drives everything. I have to look to make sure everything's perfect because this person I love trusted me to look after them when they're, if they got to this place. And it's the, I, I really think that there's this opportunity for co-design and we're still working through that, helping our staff feel like they have enough tools and um, enough agency and autonomy to be able to co-design with uh, an advocate, a, a daughter, a, a spouse, a mom, so that they're all on the same team. So an example is uh, in traditional language, in clinical language, we might say a resident resists care. And then the person that is their person comes in and says, you didn't shave my dad. Um, and then we say, well, he resists, he resists care. And, um, and it might be that he's not out of his pajamas he, for breakfast and he resists care. And so some of the strategies, one of the strategies we've been using and to try to resolve that is, okay, we recognize this person is resisting care but we want them to have care. We want them to have their morning care. We want them to get to the bre to breakfast with dignity. We want them, shaving was really important to them every day, or maybe it wasn't, we find out. And so we have a care conference or a conversation with the, the family, the designated care partner, whoever that might be. And we approach it as a team. So the, the goal is great care in the morning. Let's just focus on that. Do you have any suggestions for strategies or what, what worked for you when you were providing support when they were still living at home? What did that look like? And we start employing some of those strategies. And when the, the son or the daughter or the spouse comes in and says, for example, you didn't shave my dad, this, the PSW gets to say back, no, we didn't get to shave your dad, but he's fully dressed. He had a bath this morning and he made it to breakfast and look at the smile on his face. And then everyone can feel like they had a part of a great morning and then they might strategize and talk about what the shaving looks like. Well, we were gonna shave it, we were gonna try again 
after lunch, or maybe we're just going to wait and see if we can do that tomorrow. But it's a decision made together as a group. And that's really shifted the narrative and the, I think sometimes the burden on family to be the advocate, to be looking for everything and checking for everything. They're now part of it. And the burden on the staff to always get it right every time, all the things, even if it means having to struggle to get someone shaved, for example, which isn't what no one wants that. Well, and as you're describing that, you hit the 80% with those things that did and being able to focus on the what's working. And we will retry on this other piece, but four out of five, kind of in that scenario, for example, it is success. And I also am thinking in the spirit of empathy exchange, your approach of this co-design really builds that empathy exchange when you've got both the staff and the family sitting on the same side of the table, co-designing and collaborating. I would imagine in there, the family are getting a better appreciation of the struggle that the staff have in trying to do their job and provide that best quality care. And the staff can have an appreciation when the family goes, yeah, you know what, my dad really kind of pushed back on that at home too. Okay, well, and let's co-design this plan together. Yeah, I I mean, co-design is new language for being all on the same team. And I'm really appreciative that it's it's words that people are using in the industry more often, because I do think it's it's created this big, this bigger shift away from we're the the hospital, long-term care, seniors home, we know best. We don't always know best and can't do this alone. And and there's a lot of responsibility on all of those partners, right? So the the family, the staff, there's a lot of responsibility. And if we can share that together, it it makes all the difference. And and to your point, we may not have highlighted all of the other things that were done successfully, right? We just would get defensive about the shaving and then it becomes something else. The whole discussion becomes something else. So this being on the same team um, really makes a difference and it hasn't been easy. It takes time. You have to kind of, uh, my one of my strategies is I write a little slogan on a, a sticky note and stick it on my desk so that when there's conversations and things coming up that are challenging, I can, it says on the same team <laughs> and I can remind us because we have to, we have to talk about it. We have to use that language because mm-hmm. um, it, on both sides, I'm confident it can start to easily feel um, adversarial, right? That we are not on the same team. So um, I, I've really appreciated the the work that you do, this language around co-design, this, this focus on essential care partners and designated care partners, because I really do think it's the future of great care is building this relationship and being all on that same team. And in a business that can be complex and stressful, the idea of simplicity and being relational, not transactional, which is really what you're describing in the Color It philosophy. Where can people find you? I would imagine people are going to want to reach out and hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing. So can they email you? Go to your website? Sure, yeah. Happy, happy to uh, talk to anyone about this. I think 
one of the, the things that have helped us be successful is that this isn't new, net new work. It's not additional work. It's the lens that we look through to the work that we're already doing. Yeah. So it's just applying this other lens. Um, so I, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, find, you can find me at graycounty.ca under long-term care. You can throw my contact information in the, the podcast notes. Deborah, I will do that. I'm happy to, to talk to anybody about it. And it, it takes time. It, it takes time. But ultimately, everybody wants the best, right? When you're working in long-term care as a worker, you want to you feel good about the work that you've done. Uh, you care about the residents. When you are supporting someone who's living in long-term care or retirement, you want to make sure they have great quality of life. So once you establish that at the beginning, it's not as hard as it might feel yeah. at first. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining me on the Empathy Exchange. Thanks so much for having me. And remember, your power is in your presence, so make your presence matter. Mm-hmm.